You are listening to Future Net Zero, a platform to help businesses and the wider community improve our lives and our planet by achieving net zero. Welcome to this Future Net Zero podcast with Chris Jackson from Centrica Business Solutions, who will be dispelling some of the common myths that surround electric vehicles. Some of them might surprise you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this podcast with Future Net Zero. Uh, I'm Johnny Bairstow, and today I'm talking with Chris Jackson from Centrica Business Solutions, and it's a very interesting topic we've got coming up for you. Uh, he's going to be dispelling some common myths about EVs. So, uh, hi, Chris, how are you doing? I'm very well, Johnny. How are you? Very well, thanks. Uh, surviving another day in lockdown. Indeed. Uh, but it's all coming to an end now, hopefully. Fingers crossed. So, uh, Chris, welcome to the podcast. And uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? And uh, I hear you've got an EV journey of your own. Yeah, thanks, Johnny. And hello, everyone. Um, I'm responsible for our fleet partnerships uh, at Centrica Business Solutions. So those that don't know, we're part of Centrica, you know, the largest energy uh, company in the UK. Uh, we're also the country's third largest fleet. And we're transitioning our own 11,500 vehicles to full electric kind of way before 2030. Uh, we advise and partner with organizations like vehicle manufacturers, leasing companies, and directly with fleet operators that want to accelerate the decarbonization of transport businesses uh, and homes. Most of my career has been in fleet, kind of nearly 15 years. I've worked at fleet management and leasing companies, uh, including two that are owned by high street banks. Reasonably new into the world of energy uh, last couple of years, uh, but I find that intersection of mobility and energy kind of really exciting it's still obviously in its infancy and the potential to help solve some of society's big challenges is is enormous and that kind of drives me both professionally and and personally so I'm um, I'm happy to be playing a small part in it and thanks to my current and previous roles I'm lucky enough to have driven pretty much every EV covering you know, tens of thousands of miles across the country experiencing the nation's charging infrastructure in including the good, bad, and downright ugly. And I'm a lifelong petrol head, but not really sure what the equivalent term is for me now that I love EVs. I generally prefer the term EV nerd anyway. And it seems handling misconceptions and myths about electric vehicles is part of my day-to-day activity too. You could be a uh, kilowatt head, perhaps? <laughs> Do you know what? I might have that one. Yeah, I might <laughs> make my bio with that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome as long as I get credit. No. Uh, so you sound very qualified uh, to dispel a few myths around EVs. That's that's interesting that you've driven all of those cars on the market and you've really seen for yourself the positives and negatives. So <laughs> I think we can jump into it with a first obvious one, a big one for individual drivers when they're told that they should be uh, getting rid of the, the petrol or diesel and switching to electric. A big barrier is cost. Are EVs more expensive and is that a valid concern? It is valid, yeah, and it is also kind of a popular misconception, and it does really kind of relate to the belief that EVs are always more expensive than you know internal combustion engine vehicles. And in the fleet world, there's this kind of long-established concept of total cost of ownership. It just just means accurately measuring all of the you know fixed and variable costs of motoring for as long as you have the vehicle, not just on the initial list price of it. And we're seeing this start to translate into the retail market as people understand how the kind of the low running costs of an EV offset its higher purchase price. However, the list prices are actually reducing themselves now, thanks to models from MG, Fiat, you know, Vauxhall, Peugeot and, and others. And you should also consider what may happen during the car's lifetime from, um, from a government intervention point of view. 
things like future penalties on driving a combustion engine into a clean air zone, higher fuel duties, lower resale values, that kind of thing. And something else is that does anyone still kind of buy a car with cash? You know, leasing and salary sacrifice is kind of really popular. The Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders say that 70% of all new cars are actually financed in some way. That's a big proportion. Exactly, yeah. And, and for company car drivers, there's not really a conversation to have. You know, for a battery electric vehicle, you know, they're currently zero rated for benefit and kind tax. And if you compare that to the, you know, £300, £500 per month tax for a higher rate driver compared to a combustion engine car, it's, yeah, it, it, the difference is quite clear. So I suppose what I'm saying is you should really define expensive. But yeah, I, I do agree that you need to think beyond sticker price. And we certainly need more affordable used EVs. Yeah. The price tag only seems to be heading in one direction anyway, doesn't it? Like you say, I think that they might still be expensive. And I think they are to a lot of people, but they ha- maybe that's because there's not such a market for secondhand cars, which a lot of people buy as well. It definitely does seem like in the future, they're on a downward trend in price, while petrol and diesels, like you say, in terms of ownership, are probably only going to increase. Yeah, exactly. And you know, that, that's why, you know, my industry, you know, the fleet industry is really important to get, you know, those big volumes of secondhand vehicles into the market much quicker, much more quickly. So if you think the average person you know, buys a car privately, keeps it for like eight or nine years, then fleets have a much, much shorter replacement cycle. So they pump more vehicles, electric and otherwise, into the used car market much more quickly. So, yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's an important part of the puzzle. Another misconception that you know we, we wanted to discuss today is range anxiety. And I think, to be honest, for me and a lot of other people, this would perhaps be the biggest concern because range anxiety refers to when people are worried that they're going to run out of charge halfway on their journey, isn't it? And they might be stuck on the side of the motorway. Do you think that this is a valid concern in 2021? Are there enough charge points and do EVs have a suitable range to allow you to not have to worry about this all the time yeah there's a kind of before i give you that there's a fun nerdy fact here that well might be fun depending on you if you're outlook, but, um, <laughs> i'll let you know <laughs> all right uh, the term uh, range anxiety is a term was was first used kind of way back in 1997 there was an article about general motors ev1 which is a, an early you know pioneering electric vehicle uh, made before they uh, kind of crushed them all uh, but gm actually trademarked the term in kind of in 2010, when some say, you know, to sell more combustion engine cars. Anyway, so what's the myth at work here? Well, yeah, you're right. It's a common one. Um, the EVs can't do long distances. And um, apologies to the listeners in advance here, but you know, sorry to get a biological, but the bladder usually gives up first on a long journey. <laughs> a 200-mile um, motorway journey is around three hours. You know, you, you're really going to need to take a break. And, yeah, there are more longer-range more affordable EVs from VW, Hyundai, Kia, you know, entry-level Tesla Model 3, over the range of around 200 miles or more. So you might not even need to stop. And it is accepted good practice to take a break every couple of couple of hours anyway. So the ever-increasing number of rapid charges on motorways and major roads, we've got around well over 9,500 across the UK as of today. However, yeah, we do need more charges in more locations and more charges at each location. And on that point, the government's Project Rapid is a a 500 million pound fund specifically for rapid charges on the strategic road network. So this and other measures will mean that the average motorist uh, kind of will get comfortable the public network has the capacity in the right places. And as a long time EV driver, 
genuinely, I can say that you quickly get over that range anxiety thing. And I believe people's perceptions kind of centre around, you know, the charge point availability rather than the range of the EUV. And yeah, there is a myth linked to that. And that's, yeah, there's not enough charging points. And this is, again, it's kind of partly true in that we need them more, we need more of them in the right locations, you know, mapped to the right power, according to the dwell time. And for us, there's kind of three main categories, which have kind of you know, different requirements. Uh, home charging is generally a long dwell time. Workplace charging, it's in the main long dwell time. And public charging, it's that mixture of short, medium and long dwell time, dependent on the location. But we really have to remember that more than 60% of houses have off-street parking, meaning most will start the day with a full battery. And the vast majority of required chargers are actually going to be the slower, cheaper sort you know, with the more expensive, high-power chargers at you know, kind of you know, transit locations. But it is right to say that, you know, patchy coverage or charging black spots is a risk that does need to be addressed. You know, let's not forget rural locations like happened with the broadband rollout. There's a bit of research, you know, positive research by Field Dynamics. You know, they stated that good coverage is available without significant infrastructure costs. Brighton and Hove Council, for instance, they provide really good access to over two thirds of on-street households with only 139 charges across the entire district. So placing charges closer to those dependent on them can actually reduce the number of charges required but up to a factor of five and the final thing i'll say here is that um you know centrica and other organizations we really understand this is important and we're investing in improving um, the sophistication of the models used to put the right infrastructure in the right place where the demand will be so uh, to ask you a personal question uh relating back to your own ev journey how many times have you been stuck on the hard shoulder is it not, how, not very many zero yeah zero. zero yeah yeah it's um maybe i've been lucky or whether it's just planning or not i don't know but uh, the net public network is there but yeah the, you, there is a mindset change uh, required uh, when when you come to planning your journeys well it's like anything isn't it it's fear of the unknown as well so yeah. for a lot of people yeah. that haven't driven the the electric vehicles you kind of i, I visualize it like uh I've never driven an EV for a very long journey. So I kind of see it like uh, my iPhone, you know, and I suddenly look at it in my pocket and, oh my God, I'm on 12% and I'm miles away from home. But realistically, based on your own experience and lots of other people I've spoken to, it doesn't really work like that. No, it doesn't. And I've just, I think we also need to get you in an EV as well, Johnny. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, I've driven a few uh, EVs and even a hydrogen car uh, yeah. on relatively short journeys, but I've never never put one to the test uh, over the long distance. So maybe later this year, I'll give you a shout and we can organise something. Happy to do that. So another one, I've imagine I'm an EV driver. I've made it to my destination and I want to charge my car. This could be at home or out on the road. Am I going to be sitting there for hours on end waiting for it to power up? And I suppose this even ties back into the, the last point you, you mentioned there, where people might stop to go to the toilet or to get a burger at a service station. But are they then going to have to wait two or three hours after their toilet break to just wait for the car to turn back on? Yeah, it's a good point. And there is a myth at work uh, that states, you know, EVs just take too long to charge. If I'm being flippant, and I am, then, then I'll say that the vast majority of charging takes seconds. Plug in, walk away. So what I actually do mean here is that the, there is a mindset change that's required. And that is do something else while you're charging. You could be you know, at home, asleep. You could be uh, at the gym. You could be uh, at your place of work. Um, you could be at the cinema. You could be down the bingo. You could be shopping, you know, whatever. There's a counterpoint that says, you know, we kind of said earlier that you need to take breaks every you know, two hours or so on a long journey. 
So instead of, you know, standing outside waiting while your fuel is pumped into your combustion engine car, the motorway service area, instead, plug in your EV while you have your food, your coffee break, while you walk the dog, whatever you do, wherever you're having your break from driving to make sure you, you, you get enough charge to either get you, you know, where you're going or to your next driving break. And there are more and more high power chargers, you know, more and more EVs on the market that actually take advantage of them. So this technology and the convenience that they bring is going to continue to evolve. And there's there's a, a slight add-on to this that there's, um, and it's an important one, so that there is a myth that says, well, I haven't got a driveway, I can't have an EV. If we look at the average uh, daily journeys in the UK, according to the Department for Transport in 2019, the average car trip in England was 8.4 miles. And just to kind of reinforce the point, it just comes down to, you know, do something else while you're charging. You know, I know of people without driveways who schedule in their weekly or twice monthly rapid charging session with, you know, catch up on emails, you know, ring friends or read a book or watch YouTube or otherwise generally do what the Americans call me time. But yeah, while a, while a mindset change is required, it's, it's kind of hardly beyond our capabilities as adaptable human beings. Yeah, I know a lot of the new service stations that are being built uh, designed around uh, the role of being EV hubs, essentially. They're much more focused on, you know, they've got cinemas and they've, they're going to have much larger coffee areas and kind of more effort put into the restaurants and facilities there, aren't they? Just so they can be, they can act as more of a place to go or a place at least that you're happy to wait for a couple of hours and you can do something interesting, you know, rather than just a seat uh, with a not very good coffee. They're making them much more centered around this kind of new way of doing things. Exactly, exactly that. You know, you, there's more productive or you know leisure leisure time that you can fit around. You know, while while your car is is, is charging. Well, what else can I do that's that's more productive? So again, it's just that slight mindset change that will make all the difference. I'm looking forward to it. An excuse to uh, go to the cinema every time I every time I go to the shops. Remember that. <laughs> looking at things on a bit more of a, a macro level uh, and touching on the energy side of things. Uh, we've talked about how there's rapid chargers and they're coming out more and more all the time and they're getting faster. We've talked about how more people are installing this equipment and they're buying electric vehicles for themselves. Can the grid actually cope with all of these, this new, all these new vehicles and all this new infrastructure that's coming? And won't, won't these power requirements just skyrocketing mean there are more carbon emissions in the end, even if we move away from petrol and diesel, electricity use is going to go way up, isn't it? Thank you, Johnny. We've kind of hit upon the real the real ground zero of EV myths here, and that that's can the electricity grid cope? So, and I always like to refer people to what the national grid in the UK actually say themselves. So, according to to their figures, even if we all switch to EVs kind of right now, there would only be a rise in demand of say ten percent or so. So, well within the scope of the existing electrical infrastructure. People who lease a car tend to keep it for three or four years and people who buy the car privately tend, tend to keep it for eight or nine years. So while there is going to be an overnight change, it's not going to be you know a cliff edge. And yeah, demand is 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 going to increase, but the overall UK electricity usage has actually gone down in recent years. You know, the, the last peak was 2002. And it's dropped annually kind of ever since, you know, mostly due to you know, improvements in you know, efficiency of, uh, of devices. However, on a more local level, you know, to a degree, this will be managed by you know, smart chargers using the home, where, again, where the majority of the charging will be done. 
and vehicle to grid, you know, perhaps in the future is going to help. Uh, the local grid operators, uh, energy suppliers will have some influence over when people charge, partly in the price of electricity. So, for example, during you know, your uh, peak demand hours, you know, 6 p.m., 8 p.m., for instance, would be higher than if you shifted that to, you know, to later on in the evening. And I'd really believe that EVs are actually part of the solution rather than the problem. If drivers can be you know, a little flexible when they charge, kind of brings an opportunity to deconstrain renewable energy like wind. So an EV can provide additional capacity in, in this sense. It also enables us to get you know, the maximum out of the existing network. And, and just a point on your, the, kind of the second bit of the question, which again is really important for people's knowledge, is that you know, EVs produce more emissions due to the battery production and the power stations generating electricity from fossil fuels. Yeah. There are more emissions produced during battery production, but you know more renewables used directly at the production plants. Um, electricity grid itself means that the vehicle, uh, as your vehicles use, it emits lower lifetime emissions. Also, you can charge your car from solar panels as well if, they, if they're fitted at your home. There really are you know, some pretty shocking lies propagated by those who've got the most to lose here. So if we look at independent peer-reviewed research, you know, it's stated recently that how many miles is it before a battery achieves CO2 emissions payback? So if you look at three commonly used battery pack sizes, 40 kilowatt hours, that's about 10,000 miles before payback. 58 kilowatt hour battery, that's about 15,000 miles. And even a large battery, a 95 kilowatt hour battery pack, that's only 24,000 miles before it's paid back. So after this, an EV continues to deliver lower lifetime emissions compared to, you know, a combustion engine car. And the final point on this a little bit is, you know, according to Public Health England, around 28,000 to 36,000 people in the UK die each year due to air pollution attributable to transportation. So let's think about the toxic tailpipe emissions in our towns and cities too. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you say that because especially in fleet vehicles, the, the payback time, they'll, they'll hit those figures that you mentioned, that kind of mileage pretty quickly. Yeah. And also for the people saying, uh, I, I think all forms of low carbon transport are very important, whether that's electric vehicles or cycling or walking or the bus. But I think it's important to realise that people who say, oh, what about that EV? It's powered by coal. It's a coal power plant. A, pe- a petrol or diesel car is powered 100% by fossil fuels, isn't it? So even if an EV is powered uh, because some of the mix is made up by coal, that's a much smaller number than 100%. And it's decreasing all of the time as renewables take a bigger share of the grid. Exactly. So just more people need to understand that. You touched on the ethical issue there, or the, the human level, uh, at the end there with air pollution. And obviously that's a massive problem in cities uh, where it contributes to thousands of premature deaths each year. But there's also another ethical concern that people have around EVs. And I must admit, this is one I'm not too clued up on myself, to be honest, because it's hard to tell uh, at this stage what's happening in foreign countries where the cobalt and the lithium are being mined for the batteries and the other rare earth metals. This is something we've got to watch out for, isn't it? Because we, we, we do risk swapping one environmentally damaging resource for another. Is that, would you say it's a misconception or is that a, a worry? No, no, it's definitely, definitely based on facts. But there is an awful lot of, lot more fear, uncertainty and doubt rather than, <clears throat> rather than facts that's behind it. And it's around the myth that, you know, you know cobalt, cobalt's mined exclusively by children. Uh, and then people kind of forget that cobalt's also present in like billions of phones and laptop batteries and 
And actually, the largest use of cobalt comes from not electric vehicles, but you know, portable consumer electronics. People can't forget this, and the, the small-scale mining is very different from you know the commercial mining that's used in um, EV batteries. You know, the startling conditions of the you know the hand mines using you know child labour shown by certain media outlets is still the, you know, the, the small minority fringe in the battery industry. And yeah, you mentioned about you know what can we do differently? Well, the cobalt's use in EV batteries is reducing. Um, Tesla's latest batteries contain less than 3% cobalt, and the company's announced the next generation of batteries is going to be cobalt-free. It's not just Tesla doing it. You know, the manufacturers are doing the same thing as well. And, and kind of last but not least, let's not forget that cobalt is also used in the petrol refining process it's just not an ev not exclusively an ev thing and this does actually link on to kind of something else that there is another, there is another myth here that says that batteries don't last so these batteries you mentioned earlier about your your, your phone johnny the, the batteries aren't like a phone battery and the majority have active thermal management and there's data that states even the worst performers have only lost around 20 percent of their capacity over seven years and these are like the first ones to market and a lot has changed since then. You know, there's Teslas and others that have a lot less than 10% degradation over the first 160,000 miles. Also remember that your combustion engine worsens over time as well, you know, resulting in higher maintenance and, and fuel costs. And if these batteries do degrade enough to mean they can't be used in the vehicle itself, then there's, they can be deployed as you know, stationary storage and then ultimately recycled. Just for a little bit of context, let's look at the petrol refining process exploration, refining, distribution, retailing, to be used just once in your car's fuel tank. And the, the final bit here is kind of the, there are developments in the battery component recycling. That means, you know, the processing centers can extract 98% of the battery materials for you know, recycling or reuse. So that again, reduces the need for, for further mining, but it is, it is an important point. Again, education to, you know, to help people understand more about it is required. Well, it sounds like batteries might be more circular than a, a, an environmentally friendly than a lot of people think. And like you say, I find, I find it particularly interesting that a lot of EV batteries are used in areas as their se for second life, where it's not so important that they can hold their full charge to maximise range or something like that. Correct. It can just be attached to a building where it can also have a supply of electricity, but it can have these batteries as backups. Yeah, and they can go for years and years and years, longer than they're probably in the car. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's an important step to say, you know, they're not just, you know, set on fire after three years when you when you change your lease. It's you know, it's, it's quite different. So let's end this on a, a lighter note, because uh, we've gone through some serious issues there and dispel some myths already. I hear you've got some strange objections that you've heard in the past to EVs. And I was curious if you'd share a few of those with our audience. Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, hopefully these will be... Um, once you might have heard yourself, my, my favourite one really is that you can't put an EV in a car wash. <laughs> the most shocking thing you'll get when driving an electric vehicle is the you know surprised look on your face when you first feel the acceleration. There's another one that you know these just don't work in cold weather. On the contrary, I'd say you know the recent cold spell we've had, we've, we've had you know EVs can actually preheat the cabin so it's nice and toasty warm in the morning. So no more scraping the windscreens, no more sitting on freezing cold seats. Another favourite is, you know, they're as slow as a milk float. Again, quite the contrary. You know, the, an EV is actually generally faster than the combustion engine counterparts. Just purely down to the way the electric motor generates, you know, 100% of its available torque immediately. So when you, you know, you press down in an accelerator pedal, the transition to increased speed is, is 
pretty much instant. And that's no more uh, on display that you have a quick, um, in your quieter hours, a quick browse through YouTube, you'll see hundreds of drag races won by electric vehicles against all kinds of things, you know, including hypercars, you know, costing hundreds of thousands of pounds more than the EV that's just kind of left them in the dust. Great. Well, I hadn't heard that um, that car wash one before, but good to know that I won't have to watch out uh, when I eventually do get around to getting an EV. It's fine. <laughs> I'll hold you personally responsible if that turns out not to be true, Chris. <laughs> Harsh. <laughs> well, thank you very much for talking to us. Uh, that's proved very illuminating and you've cleared up a lot of potential issues there for our audience. So, uh Thank you. And we can catch up in the future to address any other potential misconceptions that might arise. Look forward to it. Thank you, Johnny. Cheers, Chris. Have a good day. You have been listening to a promoted podcast from Future Net Zero. Thanks for listening to this Future Net Zero podcast. Please follow us on social media and subscribe to the website at www.futurenetzero.com. Future Net Zero. Better business, better planet.